Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. Um, we're going to be speaking with Stefan Alexander, a physicist, on his book, Fear of a Black Universe. And um, I'd like to welcome our online audiences, our live stream audiences, and those of you who listen later on YouTube or Facebook. Um, and this is one of over 600 programs we've done since the pandemic begins began. And we are about to begin uh, having normal programs at the club again soon. But in the meantime, um, we're here to discuss uh, major issues in physics, uh, which Stefan took on in his book in a fascinating way. So first of all, welcome very much uh, to the Commonwealth Club, Stefan. And uh, my first question for you is, uh, I thought your, your idea in your book, about the middle of the book, about diversity, having diverse views, uh, was tremendous because, I mean, there are basically millions of minds all attempting to have uh, give ideas about what our shared reality is like. And if we don't take into account all those different viewpoints, I mean, we're, it's rather hubristic of us in the first place to think that we can figure this out. But if we don't take into account all those different things, we're, you know, we're, we're more shot than we are in normal. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about that because I thought that was a, an interesting angle on your book. Yeah, thanks. And it's a great honor to be um, here at the Commonwealth Club. Um, always been a big fan since my you know, days living in San Francisco 20 years ago. <laughs> so it's, a, it's amazing uh, how things come full circle. Man, that's, uh, you really hit the, the, what's called the nail on the head with that question. Because I think like, you know, yes, when we look at the history of science and the development going way back, you know, way back 500 B.C., with the Pythagoreans and even all throughout the world. I mean, we've had special individuals who have, you know, been credited and rightfully so to make the big, big leaps, the big breakthroughs. As you said, like, there's a sense in which, like, there's a part of me that realizes that as a researcher and as a person that teaches physics and, you know, there are times where I, I will get an interesting perspective and idea from a, a student or a beginner or someone who is green behind the ears, right? Um, and I think that I, you know, I'll put my flag on, you know, on the, put my flag down or whatever that saying is and say that like, you know, I do believe that we all as human beings endowed with the same, you know, senses and con all the things that we have as human beings. I think we all, as you said, we all have our experiences of this reality that we're in. And um, I think we should respect that and, and in that spirit, um, open a door. And, and what I'm saying, open the doors for others to also explore with us. And that's not coming from a naive kumbaya place, by the way. So I just want to also say that. that. <laughs> well, I, I think it's important even to think, I mean, you, you talked about the Pythagoreans. Well, Pythagoras traveled around and he, he had a whole bunch of Egyptian priests that he studied with. And then he went other places. And, you know, maybe he got rid of 95% of it. But even if they just did things with intuition, there's still angles that they took that influenced his ability to put ideas together in a different way. Uh, and I think every great thinker uh, who, who, as you said, is part of the recorded history has at least a thousand minds, probably, that, that they took things from. And I, I think it's important for everybody who wants to push the scientific thing forward to think, you know, you don't have to be Einstein to make this happen. You can be somebody else that does some other research that then you just put it down your piece and somebody else looks at it, picks it up and works with it later for a bigger picture thing so that everyone feels, and they should, that they're a part of that operation that humanity is on. And, and as I said, you know, it's kind of hubristic of us to do it, but we're making great progress. So we really don't need to stop. Yeah, totally agree with that. Totally resonate with that. All right, good. So uh, let's talk about the three big issues in your book, too. Um, you said that you wanted, in your book you wanted to talk about three big things. One was intransigence, right? I got that right. Oh, invariance, invariance, not intransigence. Yes, <laughs> invariance. Um, and then, uh, so why don't you talk about that idea for a little while? Why is that one of your important ideas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it starts with, uh, um, of course, it's, you know, I mean, one of the things that attracted me to physics um, <clears throat> I actually tried to be a biologist first. And then when I realized I had to take organic chemistry, I ran away. But I think the, the idea of the economy of, um, you know, the economy of being able to explain many phenomenon with one set of uh, one idea or one equation. Um, and I think behind that is this, you know, the search to 
find simple things, simple ideas. Um, and through these simple ideas, then maybe, you know, you have a whole comp- you know, a whole web of complicated things going on. And boy, wouldn't it be great if we can just like find some elegant, simple way of explaining all that complexity, where that complexity grows out of from this simple idea. And I think Albert Einstein, you know, and his idea of principle theories coming up with underlying principles that can encapsulate all, um, all, you know, a wide range of phenomenon. And his, I think, you know, he put at, when he realized that through special relativity and then later on general relativity, that the principle that seemed to encode that physics, you know, time trans, you know, time you know, dilation, length contraction, all these zany, um, magical features of nature. Um, You know, the thing that was behind that was the idea of invariance. That, and and it's, you know, so the idea, this, this, Albert Einstein put this principle at the forefront of physical law. And the idea, very simply, is, let me just, is encoded in an example. I give you a square. I put in a square piece sheet of paper. Well, let's do a, iPhone is not a good idea here. Okay, okay, I got something. The old box here. Here's a square box. And then I tell you to close your eyes. And we will ask everyone to close their eyes. And some people are not. But clearly, for those that don't, I'm going to do something to the box. And then you open your eyes. And it looks exactly the same. Okay, but actually what I really did was I rotated the box by 90 degrees. And so the idea of invariance is that I basically do a transformation on an object. And I realized that the object looks the same um, based on that transformation. And so I call that an invariance, that the object is invariant. It looks the same even after I made a transformation. So therefore, we discovered that the box has this symmetry, which is rotation by 90 degrees. Right? So what Einstein basically was saying is that, hey, maybe the laws of nature is like this, uh, at least gravity, which is different if I now assume a transformation has to do with moving an observer by a given velocity, and another observer is moving by a different velocity, that's a transformation. He said, there are some things that are going to be invariant, that does not care about how I transform or how I change things. So change in a physical system, there are some things that are not going to, going to be invariant, they're not going to change. And in that case was the speed of light, for example. Now, so the idea of the invariance principle which underlies that in mathematics are symmetry principles and how you transform things. So what Einstein basically realized was that is a, that is a principle of nature. And then the theory of general relativity then turns out to confirm that because in general relativity, he's saying the laws of nature does not care about any transformation that you make of your frame of reference. Whatever the laws are, it doesn't care about that. And then if you formulate now the laws um, such that you figure a way of just mathematically making that statement, of course, um, mathematicians gave us the math. It's called group theory, amongst other things. That tells you how to do that. Then you find, bam, you get the theory of general relativity and you get the curvature of space-time and all these beautiful features that we now confirm with the existence of black holes and gravitational waves. This inference principle seems to be a, or symmetry, which is, I'm going to use those words synonymously um, in a naive way, of course, um, to say that the laws of nature does not seem to care about the different perspectives that one takes, um, that the laws are somehow encoded, whatever the laws of nature are, they are encoded such that they don't care about these different ways of looking at things. Um, and it turns out that actually, one last thing I'll say is that that idea led of invariance and symmetry also applied now to the other three interactions um, that they themselves enjoyed symmetry principles of their own or invariances of their own. So let's go, uh, and then superpositioning, isn't that a quantum mechanics idea? Yes, yes. So that's another one of your big ones. Right, so there are three principles that I based the book on um, to get us out of the jungle of, of, of countless equations and say, let's liberate ourselves from jargon and equations and get to the heart of the matter. And um, superposition is one of them. 
and that is that that is um, it underlies quantum mechanics. That was a hard one because I had to I had to figure out um, what, if anything, are, you know, are there any fundamental principles in quantum mechanics? And it was really hard to pin down a principle, one principle behind quantum mechanics. But um, I had to surrender to one, and um, so superposition. Um, was one was the one, and that was mainly based on Paul Dirac, one of the architects of quantum mechanics and quantum field theory, and he wrote a book. He wrote a book about you know the foundations of quantum mechanics, and he begins his book with the superposition principle. So I stole it from him as the principle, and the reason why is because it's a it's a place where quantum mechanics. This superposition principle is where quantum mechanics departs from our ordinary classical or non-quantum world. One way I like to, I like to say it is um, it's as if like, okay, in classical mechanics, the non-quantum world, if I throw a, allow me to say a football and be um, American centric, I mean by, you know, American football, the, the oval one. If I throw away my right hand, right, the ball is spinning and moving towards you. So if I throw it towards you, it spins and moves towards you. So it's, you know, it has um, a, a given state, we call it a state that's unique, meaning that it's spinning and moving in a unique trajectory towards you, right? Or I can have a different state, which is um, I can throw it my left hand it, and imagine it moves the exact same straight line toward you, but it's now spinning in the opposite direction. In the classical world, you will see either this or that, right? That's classical mechanics. That's the world we experience and live in, at least the one I experience and live in. I'm sure some of our friends out in Berkeley will back to differ. <laughs> now, now, but in the quantum world, the quantum world is basically states as a principle and as something that must happen that both has to be both situations, both states, as I told you, have to be superposed. They need to be added together to actually make sense out of the experiments we see in quantum mechanics. So the superposition principle tells you that what are thought to be unique states of motion or states of existence that can only happen once at a time in quantum mechanics, they need to happen all at a time. Let's say. All those possible states need to be added up or superposed in that sense. And so that is weird, but that is what is what Richard Feynman, amongst others, told us has to happen at least at the level of the mathematics so that quantum mechanics can agree with experiments. And then you talk about ontology, then it becomes weird, yeah. One of the effects of that is this idea that there's multi-universes everywhere, that they all exist at the, at the same <laughs> right, time, right? right? Right, right. So, right. for those of you who are fascinated by that, because if you include yourself in a quantum the superposition of state, yeah, <laughs> you're right. Exactly. You want, you want to have, live your life differently, some other location at, at the same time. Um, it's appealing, but uh, that's a little bit like time travel. It's appealing because we don't want to be responsible. <laughs> right, right, exactly. You know, right. emotionally. So, uh, it's a very interesting thing because that that superposition uh, idea is based upon uh, the idea that that we make the uh, probability wave function collapse when we perceive an event, right? Yes. Okay, so so what is the perception that's involved there? Is it a mechanical perception? Or is it or is it just our vision? I mean, what, what does it take to make something be seen? Because we do it with, with machines, really. Um, and then there's this whole other question that you get into later, uh, which we'll, we'll, we'll get back to about the universe. But, but what is it meant by that we perceive it? In this, in in that quantum position, I've been asking the same question. Nobody knows. I mean, you know, let me just um, give it a little. So normally, what people like Niels Bohr meant was a measuring a classical measuring apparatus. So some device, some device that does the measurement, and it's not us. So there's some device that's looking at this quantum system and measures, tries to look at where the elect what the electron is doing to realize that. The active measuring means that this device has to emit a photon, which interacts with the electron, then changes its state, and then collapses a wave function. And then you can then get more clever about it and say, well, let's do it in a way where it doesn't really collapse a wave function and da-da-da. But then there's still this issue that the electron is existing in a superposition of 
states. It can be here, it could be there. And then when I go and measure it, it's there. And so it's interesting because, you know, one of the great, probably the great, um, the greatest, one of the greatest minds behind quantum mechanics, and I believe he's a father, one of the fathers of, 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 of computers is von Neumann, um, wrote a book, I think it's called The Mathematical Foundations of Quantum Mechanics. It's a very daunting book that I struggled through, but I had to read it to write this book. And um, he basically traced mathematically the chain of events that ultimately lead to a conscious observer that has to register in their, you know, minds or consciousness or photons in the eye, whatever it is, that traces back to us being the culprit. And Eugene Wigner was another one that I think made similar conclusions. Um, I'm not, I'm just saying that if, you know, some of the greatest mathematical minds in quantum mechanics pointed in this direction that it's maybe perception or consciousness or words that we still don't, I, you know, I don't understand um, that's doing the job. Um, and then some people say, no, there's no problem there. It's just quantum mechanics is actually incomplete. And once we figure out a way maybe of figuring out how the theory itself does a collapse in, then there's no need for this, this issue, for this type of woo-woo, as they call it. Right, right, right. It's a, it's a probability theory. It's, it's a little like um, if you think of probability theory in Las Vegas with a thousand decks of cards, it, it can predict the overall outcome. Um, but it doesn't say anything about each specific card being turned over. Right, and right. and I, I think that that's that's I mean, mathematically it's absolutely beautiful, and it's also so effective. One of the the, the most effective predicting tools we've had. Uh, I, one of the things I think from that is that we can conclude that that there is no uh, alternative to the action of all of the tiny, um, you know, particles that are involved in quantum in, in quantum theory. That they're not they're not deciding as they go halfway across to go someplace else because you can. Right. You can predict exactly with you know trillions of things going on, so that's why I think it works well. But I, again, we're out here trying to figure out our shared reality, and and I, it seems that that probability theory approach uh, is is not specific enough to help us sometimes with what's really going on. It just helps us predict outcomes at that level, which is what we're working on. So, uh, yeah, I tend to I tend to agree with that. Um, and I, one one way I think of interrogating that is when you look at the double slit experiment, it may give you a probability that the electron can go here or go there. But once you start asking, what exactly is the electron doing when it encounters these two holes? Quantum mechanics, the probability interpretation of quantum mechanics by definition doesn't tell you that. But there are other alternative um, interpretations that do tell you that. And like, you know, so either way, you know, let's say the, the probability interpretation is weird because it then doesn't tell you what the electron does and it just you know, um, puts its hands up and say, uh, we, we have no idea what it's doing. You know, we can tell you probabilistically what it's doing, but, you know, you still have this, you, you do have a, well, the thing that's weird is that it tell you when it's done. And the thing that's interesting is that actually, you know, the Schrodinger equation, which actually contains the information of the probability is actually a deterministic equation. It actually itself you know, tells you what the wave function is doing at this time and what it'll do at time 20, right? Um, 20 seconds later, it, the equation will solve that, but it will tell you what the individual electron is doing at a given time. That's interesting. But my point here is to say that there are other interpretations that doesn't change the structure of quantum mechanics, the mathematics, that will tell you what it's doing at the expense of something weird happening. So my point is that either way I look at it, Quantum mechanics is just weird. The other one tells you that you need non-locality, for example. Spooky action at a distance needs to happen. And if you believe in that, then it will tell you what the electron is doing, actually. But the electron is doing something because it knows something further on down the way. You know? it's, it seems interesting, too, that, that uh, those, uh, you know, as I say, virtual quantum particles uh, coming into existence and disappearing, coming into existence and disappearing, it would seem that that's a little bit uh, against the second law of thermodynamics. You know, I mean that basically, or not uh, that so much. Not 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 second law of thermodynamics, but the fact that there's conservation of mass energy. If if we're supposed to have a certain amount of mass energy, then then there should be 
a set number, I mean, I'm sure it's way in the decillions, but a set number of particles and a set amount of energy, all just, you know, changing all the time in the continuum of change. So it wouldn't seem that there would be any possibility of creation and destruction at moments that, that, that the quantum theory sometimes talks about because it fits the math of, of this fluctuations. Yeah, I mean, there is, I mean, we physicists in the past did have to encounter this issue point of the conservation of mass energy. Um, and this is why, for example, the antiparticle was invented, <laughs> you know. So, um, yeah, um, you'll have to tell me more about, you know, why you, I mean, this isn't, because this is a different situation. Um, you're talking about non-locality? No, no, I was just talking about just the general idea that if, if you can have virtual particles that appear and, and, and disintegrate oh. before, before they actually become real, then you seem to be talking about things, you know, you're not talking about a set amount of anything. You're talking about a certain amount of random fluctuation. Some people like that idea because they think it allows for free will, which I think is kind of interesting. No, so, okay, in that level, yes, I agree. Yes, yes. So, you know, it's interesting. So quantum mechanics does tell you, actually, for that little instant of time, that little tiny minuscule change in infinitesimal change in time, you know, that actually energy is not conserved. Yes. So energy is vi energy conservation. So overall, if I like look, you know, the gross, um, you know, it all conspires to cancel all of the tiny little violations in the conservation of energy on shorter timescales conspires to, to, um, to give you conservation of energy classically. Mm -hmm. Right. It all, in the end, it gives you the right answer. In the end, it gives you the right answer magically, and and it well, and it's it's been so effective uh, that it's kind of hard to argue against it sometimes. But it's still uh, an area that uh, some of the ideas about when relativity looks at something a certain way, it's not possible for quantum mechanics and relativity to both be right at the same time. And everyone knows about that. But well, let's talk about your third principle now. Okay, so yeah. the third principle is uh, emergence. Um, something that a lot of people uh, talk about in a lot of areas outside of uh, physics. But why don't you talk about what it means in physics? Yeah, okay. The simple, I mean, for me, the simplest idea is when, you know, water vapor um, becomes liquid water. So, in other words, if you look actually, at, you take a, you know, a little chunk of this water vapor and you look at it and say, okay, I interrogate what it's made up of. You, say, you realize, oh, it's made up of water molecules. Then when you look at liquid water, forget about how it's organized, okay? It's made up of the same exact water molecules. So the individual water molecules themselves in, 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 the, in the gaseous state and in the, in the liquid state, the individual ones do not have the properties of the gaseous phase nor the liquid phase. Yet collect, collectively, now this is, so, if you want to call it a swarm effect, Collectively, they swarm in a way to have um, the properties of, of, um, of a gas, right? So it has pressure, it has, you know, it occupies volume in a certain way. It might even have a given temperature, right? Um, all these things that gases will have. But the individual things, if you look at one, it doesn't have that property. And the liquid phase, again, what individual doesn't, you know, it doesn't have fluid properties or fluid flow and vorticity, whatever it might, fluid might have, right? But yet it conspires collectively to have this emergent property. So emergence in this case is that the individual constituents, the building blocks themselves, can come together collectively to create properties that individually they do not possess. And, um, and so there are many examples. And so the, I, you know, we, because we see this, this type of emergence happening, regardless of the substance. Um, so it can be quarks, for example, you know, a bunch of quarks can come together to form neutrons and then neutrons and under the right conditions can form a superfluid state, um, which can be part of a neutron star, but we see superfluids going on with helium, right? Helium, um, you know, molecules. Um, so, um, sorry, um, um, helium atoms. Um, so we see these emergent properties happening regardless of the, the players in the game here. 
And so that to me made me say that one, that, you know, and this was actually my way of, you know, if I'm going to talk about modern physics in this book and talk about the, the, the frontiers of the field and where, what was stuck on, I had to basically deal with the issue of reductionism, that simply by reducing our physical world to individual atoms and going to deeper levels and to smaller distance scales and discovering more symmetries and all this stuff, I had to realize that, listen, you know, there are, this is Philip Anderson, right? More is different, this famous essay. Um, that basically, no, I mean, like, there are things, there are fund, things that we may consider to be fundamental properties that emerge, that they're not reducible to some building block, right? And so I wanted to basically inst- you know, state that emergence is a fundamental principle of the world amongst the three other principles. Put at the same status of these two things that reek of basically seeming reductionist. Yeah. Right, that, that everything is determined. Yeah, it's, it's a, a very interesting part of uh, modern physics because, uh, I mean, before we were looking at things with what we can see. We, we only see a small range of, of, of uh, light, you know, that, that our photons bouncing off things. And there's a tremendous amount of other stuff going on besides that. And as we keep opening up to more and more things that we just didn't normally see, but we can see with our new instruments and everything, we, we can tell that you could, you could ignore the Earth altogether in, in, in describing what's going on. And you could just talk about the neutrinos that are going through it all the time and, and not affecting the Earth at all. Uh, but at the same time, the Earth is obviously an emergent property from what you were just saying. And it's so many combinations of so many different things in such a way that, that you know, we have now been able to have life on it. But it's a, it's a fascinating sort of topic because uh, this is where I wanted to go with the second law of thermodynamics. It, entropy is the way that all of those small particles are moving. But, but something is re, you know, pushing them in the opposite direction. Locally, not, not on a major scale, just like you said before. But locally, something is pushing them in the opposite direction. Now, when it pushes in the opposite direction, it still creates more entropy, which is according to the rule, but in that locality. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? You, you, you mentioned that, and it's kind of a very, about the only way to explain what's going on. But, but uh, you know, and people, of course, love that for coming up with all kinds of different explanations for what causes that. But, but from a scientific point of view, this, this anti-entropic force, basically, at least locally. Well, I mean, you know, one thing that, that, that um, if I want to say, I mean, when we think about order and structure, you know, like, you know, the fact that, um, you know, if I um, form, you know, crystals, you know, um, there is something that's causing that order to, to occur. But one thing that's, you know, that's, that's causing that to occur is that I am taking heat out of that system, right? That's one thing that, you know, there's a flow of heat out of the system. And as things cool down, then what happens is that these atoms actually can now feel and smell out their local interactions and form bonds, for example. And, you know, okay, bonds then can maybe say something about the organizational properties, meaning it forms a nice little crystal lattice, like sodium chloride, and you get salt, right? Um, and heat basically is agitation and the, 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 the thermal random motions. So heat is synonymous with that or equivalent to that, the velocity. So if I slow things down now, oh, I can see that you're here and you're here. Okay, let's form a bond. Now, so that's one interesting thing. So what's at work there is, of course, energy, right? And potential energy. So, um, so there is, you know, energy that can go into a system that can cause it to basically form ordered states, you know? Um, and, um, you know, so there's this real dance between like energy um, and, and you, you know, one thing we take for, for granted, you need space. Give me some space, you know? I need to find my own room. If you don't have space so that these structures could form within, and that's actually a big mystery as far as I'm concerned, because in the universe, actually, there is this dance where the universe started off like, you know, very hot and it reached a point where actually it was almost in complete perfect thermal equilibrium that we call this time, the cosmic microwave background radiation. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a time of equal matter and radiation where the universe was in equal forms of matter is very hot, very, you know, this, um, um, everything was basically like 
similar to everything else. I mean, it's one way of putting it, right? So you're in equilibrium. So everything had the same property on average as everything else. All the atoms were moving at the same average velocities. And there's, it's kind of, for all intents and purposes, you know, formless and chaotic, right? And the temperature is on average the same, roughly 3,000 degrees above absolute zero, um, similar to the surface temperature of the sun. And it's, you know, whenever you have a situation that is near perfect, um, you know, perfect um, in near perfect um, equilibrium, it's actually, that's actually where the entropy, according to thermodynamics, is, ma is maximum. So you've reached the highest entropy state, the state of highest disorder. But it's interesting that because the universe, so you say that's then if the second law of thermodynamics says that systems will always tend to just move to a state of maximum entropy. Well, there you got it. In the universe's past, it was already there. So how did it end up in a situation where there's life? <laughs> so the entropy did certainly did not become continue to grow. But what ended up happening is luckily because the universe is expanding and more space is being created, I'm, I'm using that word poetically, um, right? It turns out that now there's a situation where the system could cool. These high entropy systems can cool because there's space um, and, gravi and gravity. So now gravity, which is creating this, this expansion, but also attracting the stuff. And then you form stars. Oh, how nice you form stars. These stars are actually become lower entropy regimes, right? And so it's interesting now because these stars now, they can trap and coalesce energy through nuclear fusion to then create lower entropy systems and feed energy into those low entropy systems called biospheres and planets. So it's a very interesting dance. And I find that dance quite mysterious. And um, if you believe in a second law of thermodynamics and you think about it cosmically, there, to me, still is this puzzle, which is, yeah, entropy is still growing as the, you know, because there's more space, but somehow it creates a situation where you can have islands of lower entropy. And that starts looking like, you know, another system that does that are living systems. So it's almost as if like the universe is like a precursor to what living systems become or start behaving like, yeah. I, we, Schrodinger call this negentropy. Me and Salvador, biologist um, Almagro Moreno, call this the um, entropocentric principle. Entropocentric principle. It, it's certainly certainly got to be one of the biggest questions of the 21st century, in my opinion, about what how how we're going to put our physics together with our biology. Um, yeah. Speaking of which, you know that that was really came out from a conversation I had many years ago. I was going on a spring day walk with Roger Penrose when I was at Penn State. And I was, I asked him, I, you know, we were talking about um, black hole entropy and, and, and then he looked at me, and goes, well, listen, I really, you know, I have no idea what entropy is in terms of gravity, <laughs> but this was one of the people. Right? And so like, that, that got my head spinning. If Roger doesn't understand it, then I certainly don't understand it. I still, and I, and I still don't. <laughs> now you're in good company. <laughs> So you, uh, before we get to the Q&A, which there's several coming in, um, you talk in your uh, book about the principle of blackness in the universe, you know, when you come to the next part of it. You, you, you title it Fear of a Black Universe. You want to explain that, that idea a little bit? Yeah, it is definitely an, um, um, an anthropic type of principle, anthropomorph anthropomorphic principle, meaning that if at the end of the day the universe created, we are a byproduct, we are the, one of the products, and so we are... We are also subject to universal laws. <laughs> and so the principle of blackness was, um, was something, it was a, you know, a play on words and, you know, including my title, um, you know, meant to be coy. Um, but um, I would say the principle of blackness is basically um, the importance of embracing stigma, the importance um, in, in, the in the evolution of scientific thought um, and in the evolution, I think, of, of human societies and, and also my own evolution as a black man in America was to, in, in writing this book and in navigating um, my career and my life was to come to terms and maybe come to some peace with just embracing the stigma, embracing the fact that, you know, um, I, you know, that blackness, being black in America um, does come with some stigma, being, you know, people hauling their books you know, their, their purses when I'm in the elevator or crossing the street or being pulled over 
or not being taken seriously intellectually, you know, in, in, in among certain colleagues, not all, um, by the way, um, that actually, and, and that actually there's a, there, there's a beauty to that, actually. It hurt, it doesn't feel good and it's inconvenient and dangerous sometimes, but also from the, seeing it from a more broader perspective that when I, in, in researching for my book, I discovered that this state of stigma of being, being um, ostracized, kicked out of the club, not funded, not promoted, not getting a job, simply because, let's say, in some cases, your ideas, the idea you had at that time in that context of history was deemed to be worthy of being um, shunned or stigmatized. So when Faraday, you know, who came from a working class background in England, um, is theorizing about invisible lines of force, you know, How witchcraft is that? You know how, like you know, um, uneducated is this? Is that to have this crazy idea of invisible lines of force? It was laughable. He was, um, you know, historians of science say he died heartbroken because it was never accepted, and people, you know, his peers said it was idiotic. That sounds very similar to people today who may talk about you know, similar ideas and they're, they're, be, they're made the laughing stock. And so it, the idea of blackness, the principle of blackness, that sometimes we need to embrace that. We need to also in, sometimes invite that. It doesn't get you away, by the way, from, from knowing your physics and doing the work. And I'm no way saying that, hey, everybody just come and just come. No, like, you know, like I'm saying that, you know, on top of that, you know, we should expect, we should welcome and expect the black ideas, the ideas that are, that might be crazy um, because history has shown us that some of the great ideas in that advanced science and physics were those ideas. And so the last thing I want to say about that to bring it back to the personal <clears throat> and the sociological was that one of the things I really was hope, hoping to get out of the book was to not yet be another, a book saying, Oh, woe is me, you know, I'm I'm you know, I'm a black physicist and people have treated me this. My book, it was really meant to say, yeah, to be to acknowledge that <clears throat> and to inspire younger people and prepare them to have a certain realistic expectations, but to celebrate, to actually say, I'm proud of that actually. I think it's really cool. <laughs> you know, I want to be like Coltrane. I want to I want to be that like Coltrane who's like who who can play giant steps what could bring in a Farrah Sanders and an Ornan Coleman and learn from that, right? So the book was a celebration of the outsider, the celebration of the black ideas. Yeah, and it was a successful celebration of it. Uh, one of the, the charms of the book is that. And uh, as you said, you know, if you look at the history of science, almost everybody was stigmatized when they came up with any, any ideas. And it takes a long time, even on really mundane things. Um, but Socrates was certainly stigmatized. As oh, <laughs> that's a real one. Yeah, that kind of thing. So I, I think, you know, like you said, you, if you're getting stigmatized, I mean, it might be for the wrong reasons. But if you're doing the right thing, it could easily be for that. I think more people have been stigmatized in human history for doing the right thing than for doing the wrong thing. You know, everybody identifies with the wrong thing. <laughs> but, right, right. But, they, but very few people identify with doing physics um, and trying to figure these things out. So um, I thought that was a great point in your book. That's why I wanted you to talk about it. And you did a great, passionate job of explaining it. That's why I started with the diverse idea, too, because, like you said, there's questions about all the big theories that we have now. And we need as many people who are interested in that from as many points of view to come along and say, hey, hey, I see this thing over here and this. And other people might not be aware of that because they didn't get raised that way or whatever. And we get insights from all over the place. And it might not be the final insight, but it might be the pickaxe in the wall that rips the wall down, you know? And that's right. And that's, that's why we do it collectively. That's right. So some, we have to rely on some people to, to put out those um, ideas. And then, you know, for, you know, it's like a baseball team or whatever. Your job is to do this. Well, my job is to do the crazy idea. <laughs> yeah, if we, can, if we can not kick out the people who come up with, you know, that, that all the multiverses are going on all at the same time. It might look good mathematically, but uh, you know this, it doesn't seem to be a likely answer to our problems. Um, so uh, we can accept well, all kinds of ideas have been accepted uh, to use to try to figure out what's going on. A lot of the times, what they're useful for is showing what's wrong with the mathematics. Right. You know, right. then you can say, well, there, the, if this is the conclusion of the mathematics, we must have gone astray someplace. That that kind of thing. And that's right. And one and one of the things I try to really pin down in the book is that while mathematics is one of my demigods, 
it's a tool. The intuition reigns supreme. It's, you know, like, you know, our mind is not a math equation, okay? Our, our, we, we generate ideas and intuitions, and math is powerful, um, and it's its own universe, and it's a very powerful tool, but we have other, we have other ca- colors or tools in our palettes that we should explore and expand upon. Yeah. Almost all advances have been intuitional, but what makes them advances is if you can, you can support them with uh, mathematics and, and logic right. and, and, and internal consistency, external consistency. A lot of it is clear thinking, clear conceptual thinking, and then the math can demonstrate it. But one thing is a lot of people, you know, they think of math and they say, well, it proves things. But it, it, there's some proofs in math, but it doesn't prove the theories. It's just, you know, it's more and more consistent, and therefore we have more reason to rely on it. People say, well, you believe in reason. Well, no, no, you shouldn't be believing in, in reason. You should be relying on it. And that, that right. way, whenever you have, when you have another better reason, you rely on that because it's a better reason, right. you know, instead of believing in something. Yeah. So, so we have a couple of questions. I'm going to get back to my, my big question for you after I get through the questions from our audience. Oh, God, well, I'm scared. <laughs> so, uh, first question: Has string theory advanced much in the last uh, few decades? Hmm. <clears throat> um, I think, on one level, it depends on what. Um, it, uh, I, I think it has advanced um, in terms of like addressing some of the questions that I'm interested in. Um, it, you know, it hasn't advanced enough. Enough. Um, but I think it has advanced, and I think you know, um, string theorists are um, the people that work on on string theory. You know, Mike, some of some of which are friends. Um, I think they, they what they're doing is very well motivated, um, and you know, when you put things in perspective, it's amazing that string theory has advanced as far as it has in the eye of you know in the eye of like human. The, the thousands of years it took us to get as far as we did. So, so that's my short answer. Um, and I'd like to mention that uh, Wonderfest, uh, as an organization, has helped support uh, this uh, lecture. And uh, I'm sure some of these intelligent questions are coming from people that belong to Wonderfest because they always do this for our physics things. So the question two, is dark matter likely to be atomic molecular and some minute dust particles? Uh-huh. <clears throat> Well, I, de- I definitely have some colleagues in the astronomy in, astro- in the astronomy world that would like. So, but I would say the answer is re- for me no, because um, we see the evidence of dark matter, the need for dark matter um, before we even knew about. Like you know, we saw it at the level of of the cosmic microwave background radiation, where we realized that you needed an extra component that had exactly the you know of roughly 25% of the energy density universe that had the properties of dark matter before we had dust particles existing in cosmic history. All right. But it doesn't mean that dust particles are not a component. Let me just clarify something. It doesn't. So one, one idea is this idea that dark matter has to be one and only one thing. And it could be that dark matter actually may get contributions from different things, but you're probably still going to need, even when you account for things like, you know, you know, invisible, like stars that are, you know, know, primordial black holes, things that you just can't see, but they still matter, right? Um, So you can add all those things up. And I guess my point is that you're still going to need something weird (laughs) called dark matter that we don't know what it is yet. And uh, as you say in your book, uh, there's a sort of a halo of uh, black, uh, of dark matter around uh, galaxies. But we don't see that, obviously. That's why it's dark matter. We know that mathematically. Isn't that correct? I mean, it's- yeah, we infer that from the rotations of the motion of, of the visible matter. Um, that's right. Mm-hmm. And, and also gravitational lensing, the lensing effect, how light bends around these, um, these objects. Yeah, it's interesting how many objects, if you just look at it conceptually, how many objects are, are mostly spherical with denser and denser cores and a little bit less, a little bit less coming all the way out, you know, and... Yes, yes. Uh-huh. And and but there's but it's not a completely uh, homogeneous spherical thing. There are different structures within it that are different and so the idea that that mathematically that the that the uh, what what we call spiral star- galaxies and everything have a relatively spherical overall thing that has dark matter to it makes sense along with all the other objects I mean because that's a 
such a common uh, form that the universe takes or different parts of the universe takes. That's right. And in fact, I, I put a paper, put a just actually the paper just came out today online, published, it's a published online with paper with my former postdoc, Evan McDonough and David Spurgle, where we actually literally showed the reason why that could happen. We have a model of dark matter that basically shows if you take a neutron star and the exact same physics of a neutron star, which is a, a superfluid of condensed neutrons, and claim that dark matter are invisible neutrons, meaning that they don't interact, they're dark neutrons, they don't interact directly with our neutrons, and then make it as large, right, as a halo, right? It's the same, that is dark matter. <laughs> it's a, and the reason why that it, it's circular, you know, the same way it's spherical, it's the same reason, it's the same exact physics, just, you know, you know again, an, an analogical reasoning. Um, and the equations worked out quite nicely, so. That's, that's great. That just came out today? Yeah, except it's a quantum fluid, so it's, that's weird. So it goes against, like, you know, we, I was thinking that quantum mechanics is only happening on microscopic scales. If you believe this, quantum mechanics is on a scale much larger than a galaxy. Yeah. Well, now here's a question pretty hard to answer. Uh, is space infinite in the universe? <laughs> I don't know. Refer, we'll refer you to uh, Albert Einstein on that one. Um, please share your question. Next question. Please share your thoughts about what happened before the Big Bang and how the universe makes consciousness possible. So before the Big Bang, uh, you had Stephen Hawking say it doesn't make any sense to ask that question, which I found interesting. But go ahead. Yes, before the Big Bang. Yes, before the Big Bang. Um, let's see. Before the Big Bang, you have to go to a place where there is no space. And in my picture, that time has to be running still. So I have to have something. So time, the evol you know, the the you know, the situation where you can have things changing even though there's no space is um my starting point. And the idea that um there is that you know, in quantum mechanics, we learned that um, you can't really talk about a particle unless you talk about a wave. They're actually, they're both needed to talk about each other. It's called complementarity or the yin and the yang, okay? You can't have one without the other. So the, the reason why then, good. So the reason why you see a particle, right, is because you have made the idea of the wave fuzzy. You have made it completely, right, um, and vice versa, right? So if you think about a particle as an analogy now, a particle is by definition something that's localizable. That's, uh, it is lo located at a given point or a locus of, of points in space, yeah? And if I think about something like a wave, it's extended everywhere. By definition, a wave is everywhere. If I take especially a perfectly periodic wave, where is the wave? Well, if one, if one peak is the same as another peak, there's no unique peak, so the wave is everywhere. So in a sense, the trade-off is locality versus non-locality. But you need both, and they compromise each other. If you, if you are in a situation where you're seeing this, it's because you have compromised the wave-like property and vice versa. So imagine that in, um, there was a situation in our early universe where you have compromised space and or the localizability of space relative to something in space um, with the act of observing or uh, localizing. And so one of the things I tried to do in this picture and had to do with Schrodinger and like, you know, I go into a lot of details in the, that last chapter that I, I, I don't think I can reproduce in a few sentences. But by using this idea of saying that if I give up the idea of space and think about consciousness, okay, and again, in a way that um, where I now think about, I think I use, I, again, in every physical theory, we have to have a begin an, an axiom, an assumption. So the assumption here is panpsychism, is that for every substance, every bit of physical reality, there is some proto-consciousness, not our consciousness, not an ant's consciousness, not an electron's consciousness, but some internal experience of the object itself. That, right, so it is bit, and it, for it to exist as a physical entity, there has to be some qualia associated with that. 
it's and this is not my idea this i i mean this idea goes way back actually to the you know to ancient cultures you know um and now it's but but you know great neuroscientists like christoph Koch and and others have been um rethinking um, panpsychism if i so but what i'm going to ascribe to panpsychism is space itself okay so there's a sense in which if space exists, there's consciousness associated with that space. And that, my, the idea is that, but it, it, it's not in the sense of um, that space is, um, so if you have that, then the idea now of, um, of the universe basically, um, so, what's com- so there's an idea now of complementarity at work. So we have space, but then we have events in space that are localizable, right? And so the idea here is that what's localizable is actually that consciousness becomes non-local, whatever that is. I'm not that. You're not that. Because our consciousness, one assumption that we're making is that we are perceiving things and taking the information and are, are self-aware of, of us being localized as a body in space. We take that for granted. But imagine if, you, imagine if your body was the entire side, then what's your consciousness, right? It's non-local. So the idea is that somehow that there's a complementarity like wave and particle, local, non-local, as this space, the universe basically existing in this thing. And the, what's quantum there, because you have to talk about quantum space-time, is that somehow the, um, that localized observers now um, localize events. So in this case, the universe basically goes from this that that's that's a pre Big Bang state. That what is going to become space um, has to basically become a non local situation first, so that space can occupy everything. But then you know, later on, once that happens, somehow that non local consciousness has to become localized, and that is basically where we start seeing events like you know the collapse of the wave function of the universe. Um, because you don't have other observers out there to collapse the wave function. So again, it makes it, it makes certain assumptions. I'm not, and um, that's the idea. But in a nutshell, I probably did a very bad job. So therefore, one has to go and read the last chapter of the book. But the point about that chapter is actually not that I cared I was right or wrong. It was really me deliberately um, engaging in um, black thinking. <laughs> I, I it, it was I really just set that up so that I can. I can be speculative. I can. I gave myself the permission to speculate without caring too much about if people think I'm crazy or not, or worthy of being a physics professor or what have you. It was. I. I, I wanted to have fun, and that was my way of doing it. I always wanted to do it, and I finally gave myself permission to do it. <laughs> and it makes no sense, but as you said, theorizing never killed anyone. I'm not sure Socrates would agree with that because he did kill him. But, <laughs> but right. theorizing is, is is as you said before. It's even if it's a wild theory. It, it but no matter what the theory is about consciousness, we have as as you put in your book, we have the hard problem of consciousness. It, it's not going away. It's there. We have to if we're going to explain our reality. Certainly, we have to explain why we're even able to discuss these ideas at all. Um, so now that is an hour's conversation all by itself. And we have, you know, a, a few minutes left here. I want to move to another hard problem of consciousness. You, you talked about Deepak and his, some of the ideas from Deepak Chopra, that is, uh, and some of the ideas that he has. Um, I want to propose that there's a hard problem about Brahman consciousness or cosmic consciousness or these other ideas that, that people talk about to try to explain the universe. Um, and, and the problem is this. If you say that the universe started with this oneness, this one mind, and then you say that it, it sort of fragmented itself into all these uh, quadrillions of minds. In a way, you can say, uh, and then the purpose of all those minds is to get back to being one with the oneness again. Then, then you have a big question, which is, why? Um, why was that done? Why was it fragmented? And, and is it presumptuous of us if the one mind expelled us or fragmented us all is it presumptuous of us to try to get back into it? Because if everybody succeeded, we'd be right back where it started and have to do it again. Um, and there, there is no conceptual logic, you know, to that part of the equation. There's a lot of appeal over the long period of time 
and there's a lot of experiences by yogis and so on that points in this direction. But, but as, as somebody said, you know, whenever we're discussing uh, big issues like that, we're, we're like, uh, you know, two um, fetuses in a womb trying to explain reality. We, we, we have so little experience. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that modern science has given us many more experiences because people die and then they you know, are brought back. And there's, so there are a lot more people talking about it. But one of the things is most common about those experiences that they say, I felt I understood everything, but you know, they don't come and solve physics problems for us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and if no, they did understand I, everything, they should have been able to. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, I think that um, I'm, you know, I would love, I mean, I'm very attracted to the idea that there's one mind. In fact, in a lot of ways, um, that last chapter of my book, I was exploring that thing and trying to reconcile that with what we know about cosmology. That's kind of what I was trying to do there was like, okay, let's assume this is one mind. How do we talk about one mind in the, con- in the context of, you know, the Hoddle-Hawking proposal of the wave function and using, you know, panpsychism? What can I bake out of this theoretically to be consistent, whatever, right? That was the game I was playing. And um, I agree. I agree that there's a paradox. There's a paradox, which is um, unless it's both, unless they're both operating at the same time, you know, in, in some way that, um, you know, our, you know, you know, that's idea of like, what, what's the, you know, you're looking at something, but if you're looking at it from a different perspective, you see something completely different, but, but the thing itself contains all perspectives at the same time. And maybe like nothing ever really happened. Nothing ever happened in the universe, but we're like, whoever we, we are seeing it from the perspective that something has happened and we are separate and that'll be a beautiful idea, but okay. What's the, what's Okay. What's the um, rotation that we need to make in this to, to, to be able to, to see the other perspective, huh? The invariance principle. And then if, if, uh, if superposition could put both of those things on at the same time, then quantum mechanics would solve another problem that it's not expecting to. Well, good. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, let's say that I forgot to say that Schrodinger in his book, What is Life? And the book was actually, my book was a play on and trying to answer and expand on those questions. Because remember, he kind of, almost created biophysics by asking these questions, by speculating in this way. You know, he talked about negentropy and he talked about DNA. He was able to almost guess the structure of DNA just by this kind of thinking and actually being, you know, um, he was being, what's the word? Like when you're, you're interloping other people's field, like, you know, what do you, you don't know the stuff. And boom, Linus Pauling sees us and, and Watson and Crick and Franklin. And the point here is that, um, one of the last questions he left that nobody picked up on, and I did, was he said, he asked this question, why are there so many minds in the world? And so I started thinking, oh, that's interesting, because the same way, you know, you, know, you think that there are many, um, you know, um, waves, but actually there's one, elect- there's one particle. But you need these many waves to talk about this one particle. That's complementarity. So that's exactly why I came up with this idea to say, Schrodinger, maybe the answer is there's really one mind and there's a perspective that's non-local in the same, by using the same analogy. And these, what appears to be these many minds are just basically a complementarity perspective on the one mind. They're complementary to each other. And therefore, you know, but how that happens and what's the mechanism and what's its wave function? Again, I'll leave that for somebody else to speculate on. <laughs> <laughs> well, the bottom line though, and I, I figured it'd be your bottom line too, is that we should encourage interlopers, you know, people who are really good in one field and, and you can't you can't ever learn all the details or all the math, but you can think about the conceptions because the, the conceptual thinking that's behind Einstein's work, he's written about and he makes it fairly clear what he was thinking about. And, and even if you don't do the math, you can still think, well, what about this idea versus this idea? And so I think uh, I, I'm sure you agree with me. Thank goodness for Marcel Grossman, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Everybody should. Somebody's got to be specialist in our specialist society. And that's where, you, you know, you, you, you make the most progress, but helping everybody else think about things, uh, you should be an interloper some of the time and, and, and throw ideas out that seem- I like that idea. I, you know, yeah, we should definitely, we should definitely, um, um, yeah. And that's interesting, right? Because some, a lot of us don't embrace the interlopers. Right. We somehow feel threatened. I don't know what it is. We feel threatened. It's not in our club. This is a very human thing, right? <laughs> yeah, well, you don't, you don't want someone who hasn't studied it for 50 years to come up with an answer that you didn't. That's, that's yeah, one reason. That's right. one reason. But, but uh, there's, there are other reasons. But the fact is, uh, it's been done many times before. And if you study the history of science, you'll know that it'll be done again. 
And uh, because we're so specialized in the 20th century, we don't have as many people looking at the big picture. So I, I, I like it in, from a philosophical point of view for as many interlopers as possible to come out and, and, and say, well, what about this? What about that? And, not, and all you have to do is be modest about it, not say you're wrong. Just say, you know, what about this? Think about this. That's all. So are you telling you're going to form the Hammond in, um, Interloper Institute? <laughs> <laughs> I would never try to organize that group of people. It's, it's not an organizable group of people. <laughs> Everybody can do that independently. That's just fine. <laughs> oh, that's a great end stuff and good idea. Um, so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in uh, its 119th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you so much, Stefan, for, uh, for engaging in that conversation. That was wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.